brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Serenity now, Higher Side Chatters. How we doing out there? From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and we have talked about many paranormal places, esoteric events, and pockets of synchronicity, but we're often still left wondering what to make of these instances of strange interweaving detail and hot spots of high energetic potency. Have there been rituals done to open unseen portals as far back as ancient Sumer or as recently as the last VMAs? Are there some places where energy just wells up like a damned river? Is synchronicity some kind of wink from the higher self that we're on the right path? Or was Carl Raschke right in that ultra-terrestrials outside of time and space play with synchronicity like a child plays with blocks? Well, it's fun to explore examples with our wide range of guests who have the eyes to see, but maybe if we back up and zoom out a bit from dissecting examples of this phenomena to focusing on the layers of reality itself, We just might elevate our own abilities and unlock a higher potentiality for ourselves. Call it a class in higher consciousness or a lesson on liminality, but today we are once again talking to Michael Wan, one of the great synchromystic minds of our troubled times, but with the intention of trying to help more people to better understand how to step up their own level of awareness, keep their Zen state in a chaotic era, and rise to the coming occasion, because the signs are there that we're going to need all hands on deck to get us through the messy years ahead. There will undoubtedly be two kinds of people, those who need help and those who can help, and Michael Wan is here to pass the proverbial torch. Of course, many THC fans know that Mike has been here plenty of times before, talking about the river goddess worship of the Susquehanna River, the esoteric life and death of Kobe Bryant, and the synchromystic ties that bind many strange events and cultural rituals that usually go unnoticed by the slumbering masses. You can find his ongoing work at SusquehannaAlchemy.com, the Susquehanna Alchemy YouTube channel, and you can support his work on Subscribestar or by purchasing a personal reading for yourself or someone who might appreciate it. I know I can use all the insightful help I can get these days, and I'm sure I'm not alone, so bring it on. Pack your glass and park your ass for the great Susquehanna sage and teacher of the synchromystic ways, Michael Wan, my man. Welcome back to the higher side. Greg, (laughs) it's such a pleasure to be here. 
And part of it is you, obviously. Part of it is uh, you. Like, I enjoy, one, it's great to hear the introductions, and that was a beautiful job. But then also, like, you know, we got a nice rapport. It's fun. But <laughs> some people would call this pandering, but it's not. The reason why I'm really excited is it's like it's the audience. And what I mean by that is like I do a decent number of shows. I do a decent number of shows. I try to do like maybe two a week, I suppose. And you begin to recognize patterns of feedback after you do a show. And, you know, you see from all sorts of different things you can measure. And what has been consistent, regardless of maybe the reach of the show, which I had been on, is that I always get the most consistent feedback from this audience. And that's everything from like really thoughtful emails to like subscribers to like orders, everything across the board. And so like, that's awesome. Like, you know, this is what I was joking about, like the pandering. I'm like, keep on doing that, guys. But the truth is this, and this is true, like in all examples, it's like when you are you, when you are just being like, you know, this is totally me without any sort of filter and it is received in open arms, like it's gotten like, you know, people get it. It's like your home. Like that's part of that whole sort of proverbial, like, you know, thing of finding your tribe, I suppose. And so I know that when you and I speak and when all of the people here listen, this is like a homecoming for me. So I get really excited for these shows. Like most wow. of the show, like every show I, uh, is a different sort of vibe, which I kind of bring to it. And this is the only show I get like a real kind of like nervous energy beforehand because I'm just like sitting on the edge of my seat because I'm like, all right, this is going to be a good one. Oh, man, it's funny you say that. It's first amazing to hear. But also I get nervous myself when I think about the size of the audience. And then I think about the size of Madison Square Garden. And I'm like, you know, hey, you're about to talk to people that could fill that place twice. It makes me nervous. And I'm like, this thing has gotten out of control, but <laughs> it, it is still great. And obviously we've been here before and you're a great dance partner. We do this really well. I do agree. We have a great rapport and it's always a treat. Each time you come here so well prepared and with a solid outline for what we're going to try to get into. And this one seems like it's really going to be a crash course in trying to raise people's general awareness a few more notches higher than they already are. And that's exciting. It's a lofty goal, but we definitely know reality is changing and this is very much needed right now. So I think it's going to be well appreciated. But before we get too deep into it, I just wanted to know how you're doing, man. Last time we talked, you expressed a desire to do more work in person and unplug from digital places. I don't know how that's going, but you also started up a series with our pal Ross Ben, which has been a lot of fun for me to see happening. You guys are definitely kindred spirits, if you ask me, but talk to us a bit about what you've been working on and how you've been holding up. That's a good question. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for treating me like a human being. Um, so, God, I mean, I think everyone's going to say this. Like, this year has flipped you in ways which you cannot imagine. So the last time we spoke, I want to say, was in September. Mm -hmm. And I had every expectation. I'm like, I'm just going to stop doing this. Like, I'm going to stop making videos. I'm like, there's nothing new for me to do. I keep on doing the same sort of thing. And I recognize the danger, I suppose. Like, I don't want to be this involved on the Internet. So I was like, all right, I'm walking away and I'm going to go back to basics. I'm going to do more and more of the in-person sort of presentations like I did before I started doing Internet stuff. And it just didn't work. Hmm. It just didn't work. 
And, you know, part of at least my approach is part of this dance is like, certainly you set a course, but then like, you know, when you meet the outer world, you also have to take that into consideration. And so I'm like, all right, you know, you go where the current takes you. And so that kind of brought me back. It brought me back to like, all right, well, this is where, at least for now, I'm going to continue to put my efforts. And so I, I kind of tweaked it a little bit. I think I always wanted, I always had a desire, like when I can come up with an excuse to like get off of any of this, like I'm going to jump on it. And so there was part of me that always had that in the back of my mind. And because of that, I don't think I ever like really was fully committed. Like, I don't want to learn it. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that because it's like, I don't want to become further and further vested in the process. And so because of that, I think I did kind of like probably just as much to get by in terms of like how I managed what I was going to do. And once it became apparent to me, at least for the short term, like, you know, this is where I'm going to be able to communicate with the most amount of people, which is what I'm interested in doing. I was like, all right, well, let me at least get my act together. And so part of that's been reaching out and doing more regular shows with other hosts. You mentioned Ross Ben. Me and Howdy Mikowski have done some stuff together. Me and Emily Moyer do stuff together on a regular basis. And so there's that and like figuring out my whole way. So there was that, but there's still this kind of like internal, like, I know that this is something I don't want to do for a variety of reasons. And so the flip side of that, the flip side of that, and, and this is, you know, very much what I think the nature of hopefully our conversation today will be about is like, okay. I was unable at this moment to disconnect from the way I wanted to. And so if I'm going to still connect and I still have to do this, well, what am I going to do to counterbalance that? What additional things will I do in order to reduce the potentiality of like all of these new technologies and like life over the internet and all that sort of stuff? What can I do to ensure that my consciousness, that all of the, you know, the different parts of me they're still grounded strongly somewhere else. And so that's what a lot of this is going to be about, is talking about that sort of process and, you know, why it's important and really sharing at least my insights over the past couple months of having that approach and what I've learned, because I learned a whole bunch of stuff and it's really, really good stuff. And so that's what I'm hoping to do. And this is going to be talking about like reality and consciousness and specifically this moment in time. Hmm. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, we never stop learning. And in terms of what we're going to talk about today, I try to do it justice in the intro there. But how would you define the overall agenda today? Based on the outline here, it looks like we're going to get pretty fundamental, but we're going to build up to a place that I hope is useful for elevating more people out there to hone in their own synchromistic skills and to be better prepared mentally for what we all see coming, a very big changing of the guard. And when it comes to the matrix of control, as you note, a changing of the guard can be scary because it's a new level of control that disrupts a lot of what we're used to, but it's also a great opportunity for more people to wake up. If you want to escape from a prison a changing of the guard is a key time to do it, right? I mean, that is our silver lining. 
That is definitely the timing. That is definitely the timing. So I want to go into like a whole bunch of stuff, like giving a model of reality in a way of like being able to understand what's going on and understand how we interact with it. Because it is my personal opinion, it is my personal opinion, and I'll be going back to this throughout the program, that it's all for, it's fundamentally bullshit. And the escape from it, like the fear is also fundamentally bullshit. But in order for it not to like manifest is like you have to be able to understand how it works. And so you're absolutely right. It's like it all goes back to to blocking and tackling. The fundamentals are what we do. And so what I've done on the show, what what I like to do and like the people who resonate with like when I come on the show or other people who are, you know, quote unquote, synchromistics, part of it's like storytelling. Part of it is storytelling. But it's really training. It's a training of consciousness. And that's every time we hear these stories or we do our own sort of observations and our own sort of connections, which which we make, what we're doing is we're training our consciousness. And so what we've been training with though is like kind of like the big picture sort of stuff. Like I used a little bit of a football analogy, but like we were practicing or training on a trick play, you know, a Hail Mary, a flea flicker, like, you know, it's got all of this pizzazz in it, you know, and we get that. And that was very, very helpful, but we need to go back. And that's what I want to talk about, like how the fundamentals work, because the whole thing, when you begin to understand it and see it for what it is, then you can recognize where and what you can go and where you can focus and understand it better. It's appealing of the onion. So maybe that's one of the reasons why we began with all of the pizzazz, but then we're going to go deeper and deeper into the fundamentals. And when you hear some of these fundamentals, they're not going to sound like much. They're not going to sound like much. You're like, what? That's what's keeping me locked in. That's what, but yeah, that's what it is. It's like, if you hold a thread of string in your hand, you're like, try to break it. You'd be like, yeah, no problem. But if you had like two things that are sewn together with like double or triple seams and you try to pull it apart, it's held together considerably stronger. So it is this continuation. I mean, a long, long continuation of this tiny, tiny threads, which hold our consciousness to understanding reality in such a way that that's what goes and holds us down. And I'll get into all of this in greater detail, but what we're going to start doing is start just pulling out that thread. And when you pull at that thread is when you see that the whole sort of house of cards starts to fall apart. Because mm. <laughs> I'm going to say one last thing before I get into a story. So the last thing I want to say, though, is one of the things which should be crystal clear, like if you're a fan of the show, if you listen to these shows, like you had to have come to the realization that, wow, they're doing a lot of stuff to us, right? You know, the food and the indoctrination and the air and the propaganda and the, all of that sort of stuff. And then like, let's flip that on its head for a moment. It's like, why do you think it requires that much effort? Hmm. <laughs> because this thing that it's trying to hold back just naturally wants to show itself. And so as we are figuring out like what it has been, which has been holding back this thing, which wants to show itself, it becomes easier and easier. 
And synchromysticism is like the finger that points at the moon. When we practice synchromysticism, when we look at the world this way, when we enjoy it, and synchromysticism is fascinating, particularly the way I, <laughs> I like to go and approach it, is like, you know, it's got a very conspiratorial element to it, but it's got a magic element to it. And it's got a like, well, I don't even know what the F element to it. Like it's got the whole thing. And so that is like when we are looking at the world like that and seeing the interconnectivity, we are training our consciousness to recognize the interconnectivity because one of the biggest things of what the entire program is about, and this program goes back thousands and thousands of years, at least that could even just be part of the storyline as well, but it's about keeping us disconnected, like literally from being grounded from what things are and seeing things that are false. And so once we begin to realize that and see what real is, and it's a whole lot easier than you can imagine, then that string starts to like come undone with greater and greater ease. Right on. Cheers to that. So many thoughts. And it's easy to just get to talking, but I want to be methodical and stick to the outline that you put so much thought into. So yes, take us through this story that you had planned to tell because it's pretty interesting. <laughs> so I'm sharing this story because when we program our minds for synchromysticism, when we're just aware of the interconnectivity, and there's an interesting, I mentioned about like just straight up mysticism and straight up conspiracy. And like, there's some minds which are, in my opinion, like too heavily weighted in one or the other camp. And one is going to like miss the structure of like, you know, the world we're living in. And the other one is missing the unexplained mystery of what we're living in. But they both are dealing with the interconnectivity of things. And so when we begin to practice it with providing structure, but then at the same time, having this element of mystery, your reaction with the world becomes more like that because you are framing your consciousness to pick up and to interact with the world that way. So I'm going to give you like, I'm going to tell you a story. And that's why I'm, gonna, I'm telling this story as like one, because we're story beings and we love to hear stories, but more so is like, I want to just go point out how this stuff works and the majesty behind it all. All right. So this story begins, it's the last week of December, 2020. So what was that like three, four months ago? And I was sitting at my kitchen table and I was really excited because I was working on my first project with Howdy. And we had agreed that we we're going to both look at a certain location from our own perspectives and see, like, you know, what we come from. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm sitting and I'm doing work earlier than I normally would, but I was just so excited. So there's a knock on the door. And this is a weird time of year. It's like, you know, the year has been weird to begin with, but like between Christmas and New Year's, regardless of whether you celebrate or not, like there's a weirdness during that time of year. I'm right in the middle of it. There's a knock at the door and there is an official letter for me. Not like a package, like where you get a box, but like where you get an envelope. And I'm like, all right. So I, I go and I take this and it's addressed to me and it's not handwritten on the envelope. It is printed out on a piece of paper with my name and my address. And the return address says the Bastion Pero of Call, 650 East South Temple, Salt Lake City, Utah, and then the zip code. And so like immediately I know that this is <laughs> the address, you know, it's a spoof address, obviously. or I mean, I'm assuming it's a joke that it's coming from there. But nonetheless, nonetheless, 
I'm kind of like hooked in like, you know, this has got this Masonic sort of implication. And sure enough, that address is the address of the primary Masonic Lodge in Salt Lake City, which is like a really big deal if you know like the history of the church there. So I go and I, I, I see that and I'm kind of like, you know, I'm giddy and I'm excited. And I open it up and I pull out this folder, like a heavyweight folder, like it's real nice paper. It's dark blue. And it's gold embossed. It says the ancient and accepted Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. And it's got like that double-headed eagle insignia on it. And I open it up. I open it up. And there's a poem, like a six stanza poem. And it's called the Susquehanna Gypsy. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And then there's also a silver dollar. From 2012, there's a silver dollar included in the envelope, and that's all there is. I immediately go and, no, I'm giddy. I'm like, this is nuts. And this is, and I'm excited. I'm like, you know, who's sending this? Like, I don't think this is legit. Like, I have a pretty good idea who I think sent it. It's not someone who I know well, but it's someone who I had done a session with. So I know him to that level. And they were a very interesting, like kind, unique person, but also like filled with mystery. I'm like, this definitely came from that person. Like it had the fingerprints on it. But I can't say that for certain. And and I don't know what that person is behind, like what my experience was in our one conversation. So I immediately go and I, I'm like, this is too good. This is too good to pass up. I take a picture of it and I send it to a friend of mine who I have a very complex relationship with. It's a good relationship, but it's complex. And when it comes to like past lives, I don't know. Like I'm open to it, but I don't know. Like I don't subscribe to it 100%, but I don't like discount it. But this is the relationship which makes me think like, you know, there's something like deeper going on just in the nature of the complexity of this relationship. So I go and I, I take pictures because if anyone is going to appreciate this in my life, I'm like, this person is going to appreciate it. So I send them the pictures. And about five minutes later, I get a response. And it's a series of numbers. It's a series of numbers. And it looks like latitude and longitude. Um, latitude and longitude can be shown a couple different ways. One way is like degrees, minutes, and seconds, which is what I'm most familiar with. And the other one is like as a decimal. So if it's like 40 degrees, would be 40 degrees in 16 minutes would be like 40 dot, whatever the percentage of 16 over 60 is. So I go and I see that and I'm like, huh. And I was in front of my computer because I was doing research on this thing for Howdy. And so I go and I put in the Latin long and I was actually looking at a map. I was looking at a map because me and Howdy were talking about a very specific place. We're talking about like where Jamestown, Virginia is. And we're looking specifically where there was a world fair or world expedition that was held there in 1907. And so that's up on my computer. I go and I put in the Latin long and it came up probably four miles away from where my computer screen was already on. Hmm. I told you it's a complex relationship. And I'm like, does this guy have access to my computer? <laughs> and so I didn't think that that was the case. But like, you know, all these ideas are passing in my mind. I'm like, this is a strange coincidence. All this stuff is unfolding. So this story is going to have three different storylines. That's where it begins. I'm going to go down one. We're going to come back. This is like such a rich story, but it, it's really painting a picture. I, I hope it is. And hopefully it's entertaining. So a couple of days goes by and I run into my friend. I see him in real life. 
And I haven't seen him in real life for, I don't know, like a couple of weeks. So it was, you know, coincidental that we run into each other. And he sent me those numbers and he sent me, there were like three letters that he sent me afterwards. And I never responded to that because it's just kind of the nature of the relationship. I'm like, I don't know what that means, but it'll come. So I go and I see him and I say to him, I'm like, what was that text that you sent me? And he said, did you go to the coordinates? I'm like, yeah, I went to the coordinates. I didn't know what I was looking at. And he was like, it's where your great, great grandfather is. Whoa. Now my curiosity is peaked and like almost like, you know, my, I wouldn't quite say like I was in a defensive state, but my state just shifted because I'm like, how do you know who my great, great grandfather is? Because I don't know who my great, great grandfather is. Yeah, it's a little intimate. So, you know, a little bit in the Mike storyline is that so my grandfather, my grandfather, he died before I was born. He died before I was born. And I carry his name or at least one of my middle names. I have two middle names. One of my middle names is his. And I know nothing about this man. The only thing I know from my father and the only thing my father would ever say about him was that he was an angry, bitter man and that he was an orphan. That's all I friggin know. That's all I friggin knew about this man. And so, so my friend says like, he knows who my, my great grandfather is and my great, great grandfather is like, you know, all sorts of things are going up. And so he tells me the guy's name and I've got all sorts of like mixed feelings going on, but overall I'm excited. And at first I'm like, this ain't true. And I go and I poke holes through it. I'm like, no, that name, that's not my great grandfather. And then I was like, "Ah, the guy who told this to me, this guy is an expert researcher. And I don't think he would say that unless he was 100% certain. So I go back and like, I pay the money and I get access to all of the, all of the genealogy databases. And I spend the next 24 hours research. And sure enough, that was my great grandfather. And I was able through working at a whole bunch of different databases, I was able to build out my family tree. And so this is interesting for this reason. I mean, I guess this is true for anyone, but like when you don't know part of like where you come from, if you don't know part of your lineage, like, you know, there's a hole there. You want to know more about it. And so I don't know, like four or five years ago, I started looking into the last name Juan, you know, like where where does this come from? What is this about? Because I know I know my family history from my other four grandparents, but I don't know this one. And it's the one whose name which I carry. And eventually I come across this character from history. And his name was Johnny Wan, spelled J-O-H-N-N-E-W-A-N-N-E. And this guy carried the title of King of the Gypsies. <laughs> I didn't realize this at the time, but like, that's a thing. Like the King of the Gypsies is like, you know, like a thing in the same way, like the Don is to La Cosa Nostra. There's like a whole world where this is like really, really important. This guy was one of these kings. He was a King of the Gypsies or multiple Kings of Gypsies, I suppose, depending upon where they are. And he was the King of the Gypsies in Scotland. And this is in the late 1500s. And the dude's got like this really strange history when you look into it. So there's this long line of like this one family line of the kings of the gypsies in Scotland. And they all go by the last name of Fa, F-A-A. And there's this one guy who was the son of Johnny Fa, whose name was Johnny Wan. And we don't know where that name came from. We don't know where he went away, but he's in the history books, like in multiple, multiple places, like in the official history books. And so apparently what happens is this guy 
uh, this late 1500s, he was exiled from Scotland and he apparently went to Virginia. And that always attracted me because I was doing all the research in the Susquehanna mystery of Virginia, of Jamestown. And it's like right around the same timeline, which happens to be the same place which the coordinates came from. And so I'm seeing all this stuff, which I was talking about with Howdy and my friend. So I get this name and this is like five years ago where I get the name and I see that and I don't really know my history. So I'm like, I adopted it as my own. And I did it like tongue in cheek. I'm not being serious, but you know, I'd start saying like, this is the lineage I come from <laughs> because I didn't have anything better. So going back to our story, as my friend says, he knows who my great, great grandfather is. And that opened up the store and I go and I trace this line of wands. And I traced it back to the first guy who came over to the colonies. And this was in 1735. And he came over from Germany and he settled in what's now called Berks County, maybe called Berks County back then, same place where all the Amish are. And so I grew up outside of D.C. I live in Amish territory in Pennsylvania now, but apparently that was where the first lineage came over. And so this guy's name is John Wan, J-O-H-N-W-A-N-N. Just like Johnny Wan, but now like 125 years later. And I was reading through the research on it, on what was available. And it says that this John Wan, who lived in Pennsylvania, basically the same place which I'm living right now, he was a drummer in a regiment in the Pennsylvania Revolutionary War. <laughs> and so I'm like, now I got a second character in history who are sharing the same name and it's starting to come from the same place. So this storyline ends like this. And this all begins with this letter. This all begins with this letter. So my father, I mean, it's impossible to not like my father does not have a positive correlation with this Juan family lineage, at least in his mind. Like the only thing he's ever told me about it is that his father was angry and he was an orphan. And I had no idea, like, you I mean, he grew up in an orphanage? Was the last name Juan? Was Juan given? Like, like none of that. And it turns out like my grandfather died and then he was raised by an aunt and an uncle, like still within the same family. But he was an orphan nonetheless. And so all this sort of stuff, my dad never talks about his dad. And... I mean, my dad, we got kind of like, we've got a weird relationship. Like I didn't exactly turn out how, what he probably had in mind. Like he was a very successful corporate guy and I walked away from that world. He doesn't quite understand what and whom I am, but I'm still a son. He's still my father, but it's strange. And so I catalog that entire family lineage. And to some people, to some people, the idea of having a family line that goes through the revolutionary war would be like, you know, a real sort of interesting attribute to think of their family line. And my father would be one of those people. So I told him that I eventually got to that storyline and instantaneously I could hear it in his voice. I could hear it in his voice. This thing was taken off of his shoulders. This thing he probably doesn't even realize he's carrying, which I'm probably carrying, which like, I mean, this is generational stuff. This is how it works. But like that, the way he looked at what and whom he came from changed instantaneously. Hmm. All right. That's quite a story, right? And that's just number one. There are three <laughs> parts of the story and it's going to make sense. So that's part number one. And now I'm going to tell you the other two parts that I want to, I want to, I'll give you an opportunity for reflection back, Greg. Sure. So the second part is this. So. I'm looking at this return address. It's from the Bastion Perrot. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. P-E-R-R-O-T. 
of call, C-A-L-W. So I do a quick search. And that is a character in a book, a book called The Glass Bead Game. I was not familiar with The Glass Bead Game when I first read about this. And so The Glass Bead Game was a book which was written by Herman Hesse. And as an author and as a book, like this is from literary critic perspectives, this is like one of the classics of all times. I'd never heard of it. And I thought I was familiar with the guy's name, but like, I think I'm somewhat well read, but like, I didn't know who the guy was, but I saw like how his literature was taken by the literary world. So I was piqued. And this book, when I read the Wikipedia description of how they described what the glass bead game was, I was like, that's synchromysticism. That is friggin' synchromysticism. They're calling it the glass bead game, but it's the exact same thing. So I was like, all right, well, you know, this arrived mysteriously on my front door. And, you know, it already had this like crazy thing with my family and like, you know, all this other connect. I'm like, I'm going to read this book. So I went out and I bought the book and I started reading it. And at the same time, I am in the process of reading. I'm in the second book of a series, which I read to my two sons. They're 14 and 15, and that's probably one of my favorite things which we do together, you know, like as they grow up, the reading has changed to be like age appropriate, I would suppose. And, you know, it's we read about it and we talk about it, and it's both fun and it's a great way to teach and learn. And so we're reading a book series called, the first book is called The Name of the Wind. And I absolutely love this book, and we're having so much fun reading this book. So I start then reading simultaneously the glass bead game. I start reading the glass bead game. And I'm reading this just in private. And I quickly become aware that these are the same story. They are so friggin' connected. And keep in mind, the glass bead game is all about synchromysticism. They're just calling it the glass bead game. So in the name of the wind, the way it's structured is there's this like, it's about this like larger than life character. And his name is Kavoth, K-V-O-T-H-E. And the way the plot is structured, it is that you've got this guy and he's like kind of later on in life or I don't know, he might be like in his 30s, but he's already lived like two full lives in those first 30 years. And this takes place in an Earth-like sort of world, but outside of our history line. And a chronicler, one who chronicles people's lives, stumbles across his inn and he's like, oh my God, you're this mythic character. He's like, I would love to tell your story. And so we're on like page 2000 total reading between the two books. The nature of the story is Kavoth, this larger than life character who is telling his story to the chronicler. And 80% of it takes place like in stories he's telling. And then 20% goes back to him telling it in like the book real time. That's how it's set up. And this book, The Glass Speed Game, is set up just like that, but on the opposite. In the name of the wind is told from Kavoth's perspective. And now all of a sudden, you start reading The Glass Speed Game. The Glass Speed Game is about a larger than life character. But instead of being Kavoth, his name was Connect spelled K-N-E-C-T-H. And so how this book is structured is that Herman Hess, the author, is presenting this act of fiction as if it is true. And he himself is the chronicler. So this is the chronicler's end outcome of the book versus like what I'm reading in the first book, which is the telling of the story. So the glass speed game goes through telling the story of this connect guy. 
And they're very similar where the first book is kind of Earth-like, but it takes place in the past. This takes place in the future in the Glass Bead game, but it's not a futuristic future. It's not computers and stuff like that. It's just like all of the stuff has already occurred and has very similar settings and so forth. But the characters are diametrically opposed. Whereas the Kavoth character is filled with like passion and outer expression and these stories which are like larger than life. This Connect guy is the head and the magister ludi of the glass bead game, which was this place where all of the finest minds in the country would come and they were scholars and musicologists. And what they would do is they would find what we would call the synchromysticism and they would try to present the most beautiful of stories and showing the most amazing connections in ways which no one would ever think are connected. But they're able to demonstrate the interconnectivity of the world to such a degree that that it's both art and scholarly at the same time. And this character is completely different, where he's completely self-contained inside and balanced and focused. And I'm reading these books against each other. And so we're all on our journeys. We're all on our journeys, myself included. And to go and see these two characters and seeing how juxtaposed they are and being able to see how this is guiding me in my own story is an amazing gift, just in the same way that it first gave me or the gift which it gave my father by this letter coming went to my doorstep and which opened up all these doors in my family line and now it's become even more personal and then lastly is then the historical significance of the fact that this thing which we call synchromysticism you know that's just the modern term in which we are using but this is an art form which has at least been told about as far back as this book and so in terms of recognizing what we're doing and the approach in which it can be taken, and then the effects, both in terms of just an abstract idea, but literally through real-time experience. This, this is what the entire experience for me is about, and this is what I want to share, that as we practice and become aware of the interconnectivity of life, and we see it in all aspects, matrix and all, that it will actually tie us down and pull us through in ways we can never imagine. So it is with these stories that I wish to kick off where we're going to go for the remainder of our conversation. Hmm. Yes, man, I like it a lot. And it seems like the universe runs on story. In the video you had sent me, you talk a lot about the network of water on the planet, the rivers, the, the network of water and current that's pushing things around. And I think that's a great analogy for how our own lives work. I mean, this invokes archetypes and unseen forces and ancestral karma and cycles of time. And it's a great example that... When things enter our lives in strange ways, it's kind of a, a knock at the door and you can sense that in its potency and its mystery. And if you engage in the mystery and kind of follow it along, clearly there is often some personal insight or nugget of wisdom waiting at the end. But how often do we not answer those calls because we got to get to work or 
Godzilla vs. King Kong just came out on HBO. I mean, there's always some distraction, but yet these are the fruits that we're here to harvest, and they should be a lot more personal and, you know, a lot more related to our actual lives. Without a doubt. One of the things which always makes me smile is the statement when people say, well, you know, it's the human's nature to want to go and make these connections. And, you know, it's just, you know, that's all it is. And when you, you flip that around, you'd be like, yeah, it's our nature to make the connections. Well, why do you think that is? <laughs> why do you think that is our nature? And so we're in this process right now of changing the guards. And so uh, first, uh, you made reference to this video. And I want to just interject this for a moment. I put out a video a week ago on my YouTube channel, Susquehanna Alchemy, and it's different than any of the other videos. And it's called Escaping the Matrix. And that's the video which you're talking about. And I, I would really encourage people to go and take a look at it. I think it's good work. In that video, what I go through is I break down a model of the way we can look at reality and really begin to see what's happening here. Because the system which we find ourselves in, its primary purpose is to keep us disconnected from where it is that we're living life. And when I, I, when I say that is I'm talking about like your feet are on earth and the skies above you, you know, not going any further than that, not saying like not knowing what the earth is or not knowing what the sky is, but you're saying like what you do know is that we're here. And there are all sorts of things about being here, which are very, very tangible and real. It wants to keep us disconnected from that and focused on symbols and abstracts of that. And by doing so, by us framing our minds or, or integrating our minds to this symbol or abstract, we're not connected to the actual thing which we're experiencing. Because if we were connected to the thing we were experiencing, regardless of where or when you are, it will begin to take control of your life. And then you no longer are part of whatever this system is. And so the system was created to go and keep the consciousness there so it integrates so that one, you are ungrounded or disconnected, and two, so then you can be moved because there's no center. So I want to begin by saying there are three different types of realities. There are three different types of realities. And so the first reality is baseline reality. That is the natural physical world. I'm going to call that the simulation. And I'm not calling it the simulation because I'm implying that we're living in a computer simulation. Like, I don't know. I don't think we are. But the reason I'm calling it the simulation, because that is the term of the times. That's just simply why. We could go back and look at the bits of history we have, and, you know, we take all of it with a grain of salt. But we see, like, you know, the ancient folks of India, they called baseline reality Maya or the illusion. And the peoples of Australia, when we were awake or what we think of as awake and conscious, like, they're like, no, that's a dream time. This is the fake stuff. And, like, you know, the quantum physicists, they're all like, no, you're made of atoms and atoms are all space. So you're not solid. That's just like an illusion. We live in a computer time right now, so it's a computer context, so they're saying it's a simulation. When I call it the simulation, when I'm talking about baseline reality, the one thing which I'm saying is it's seemingly not what it appears. 
You know, I don't know what it is, but just like what it looks like, it's seemingly not that. It's not that. So the baseline reality is this natural world and the natural world we're also indicating is different than what it appears. But nonetheless, that is the baseline reality. And then the second reality, the second reality is the matrix. There's the matrix and then there's just matrix. The matrix would fall underneath that general category of matrix. And matrix is any reality which is created by human beings. And there are some matrices which are in more harmony with the greater reality. And there's some which are totally inversed. And the matrix, when I use that phrase, I'm referring to like the dominant one, which we're experiencing right now, which is all about domination, control. And it is an inversion. It's an inversion of the laws and rules in which it exists itself. But it's still in a resonance. It's just a dissonant resonance or an inverted resonance with the truth. And so matrices are everything that's language. It's all of our stories. It's structures are like cultural structures, organizations, governments, religions. The customs, it's all of that sort of stuff. That's where the matrix begins. And to be human is you are in a matrix. There's nothing, you know, inherently wrong with the matrix. It's just understanding exactly, you know, the way things kind of work. And so the matrix is the second reality and exists within the or on top of the baseline reality. And the matrix appears to be most real because it's what we interact with our consciousness the most. It seems to be the most real, but it's the least real of the three. And the third one is which the simulation and then therefore the matrix exists within. And I'm calling that the greater reality, the greater mystery. And it is where all of the laws and the rules which makes the simulation run, it's where it exists. And this is a general model. Like we can take whatever story, story is just matrix. Some of them are more accurate than other ones, but like every story can be told multiple, multiple ways. They all fit within this general model. What we're doing when we're beginning to play with synchromysticism and when we talk about that is we point out the nature that all of the other realities, the simulation which we experience in our physical bodies, and then we have our, like more in our mental head where we're in this matrix reality, whatever that may be, but they're all permeated by this interconnectedness which exists beyond the curtains. And, you know, there are all sorts of ways of describing it, but I just want to be general like that. But it is based upon the interconnectedness in which the other two exist within. It permeates it. So then that's kind of like the outer world and we have our inner world. And our inner world is best understood with her consciousness. And there's lots of ways of thinking about and slicing and dicing consciousness. And so I'm just going to go and give one way. And if you're familiar with like brain states, like, you know, alpha and beta and delta and theta and that sort of stuff, like, you know, it kind of corresponds with that. But these are, we use models, we use models as ways of being able to understand the abstract and sometimes the understandable, but they're not things themselves. They're just tools to help us understand. So the first consciousness is matrix consciousness. And each of these consciousnesses, these ways of thinking, they correspond to those three realities. That doesn't mean that they can't be used in the other ones. In fact, we're using the wrong ones in the wrong times all the time. 
it's just there is a correspondence. So we begin with naming consciousness, which is part of matrix thinking or matrix consciousness. And naming consciousness deals with this idea that everything has to be named, everything has to be measured, and everything has to be categorized and organized. And that certainly holds a place. It's very, very helpful for communicating. You know, it's part of the human experience, but, you know, too much of it is too much. But that is one of the techniques which has been used to keep us focused upon a matrix reality with an overlooking of the other two realities. And the reason why, or part of the reason why, is naming consciousness by its nature, by naming something, you are identifying how it is separate from the whole. You know, when I call my hand my hand, I am implying that it is different than my body, as just like what I call my body is different than everything else. And so we're slowly, every time we use the naming consciousness, we are reinforcing an idea of separation, of how things are not being connected. And I'm not saying don't use names. I'm just saying this is just kind of, you know, we're going to the basics, the foundation of understanding how the system works. So an alternative to naming consciousness would be open consciousness. And open consciousness corresponds with the simulation of the natural world. And this is a way of thinking without using names, without naming something or categorizing, just simply observing. And, and, you know, this fits into like a lot of like Eastern sort of practices of like, you know, emptying the mind and all that sort of stuff. And we're just describing different ways of being human and how we work these different tools which we have. And so the simulation If you apply your matrix thinking, if you apply your naming consciousness, you go out into the woods, you're like, the freaking woods are awesome. And we know, we know immediately when you're outside in the natural environment, like there's all sorts of benefits which immediately happen physiologically. I mean, this is when I say like it takes so much to hold us back because like we naturally go to this other state as soon as things aren't putting toxins in us. But if you go into the natural world and you're still using naming consciousness, you're not really experiencing it. You would need to go and utilize open consciousness because the level of reality, the natural world, baseline reality, the simulation, it gets lost as soon as you begin to name it. So open consciousness generally is how we begin or transition to the third phase of consciousness, which is union consciousness, which begins with open. And open is kind of like a sense of awe, but then that awe kind of dissipates and then there is a merging. So it's like the mind remains open and that merging happens because there is a deeper knowing. There is a knowing of the interconnectedness which one shares with this environment and where we find ourselves. That is the truth of the human being. We adapt to our surroundings. This is how we are, you know, whatever, whomever made us, that's what we do. And so wherever we are, we become that. We adapt to it. We merge with it. And so if we, particularly when looking at the modern matrix, so when we look at the, and we think about like the most powerful tools, like, you know, you think about TV. We know that when someone first sits in front of the TV, they go into a slight hypnotic state. And what they're doing is they're applying open consciousness. 
they are observing what they're watching with this state of awe and then it shifts into this merging consciousness and then they start becoming that and so part of what the whole system is how it's set up and once we kind of understand what's going on in this basic level we can see how it's happening over and over again and so what's happening is the outside of the matrix baseline reality and greater reality most people are missing that they're missing it because they are naming it they're discounting it they're not looking for it they're using the matrix thinking on the world which they could be merging with but then secondly they are using this open consciousness then to merging consciousness to merge with everything which is in the matrix which are always just abstracts or tools of something which is true and it is just pulling someone naturally it's weaponizing it's using our natural tendencies and abilities in a way to hold us into a reality which isn't real and that's the whole game and it is incredibly evident right now and they're working at it really really hard because right now they're changing the structure of the game but because of it we're able to see everything much much more clearly and it provides us an opportunity to begin to put in practice to recognize how we go and in ways we can't even imagine and we'll go into those examples shortly of ways which we are completely blending our consciousness into the matrix reality and how that impacts the way we see things and do things Mhm. <laughs> I like it. That is a lot to chew on, but I think even though it can sound pretty fundamental, these things can be subtle like the threads analogy you used earlier, like a lot of small threads can create a lot of drastic effects and so many of us are walking through life unconscious or just going with whatever mode our subconscious has us in or we're being led around. And I was just thinking kind of about the differences between inside and outside. I mean, in the completely man-created world of our domiciles, it's all rigid and structured and straight, whether it's property lines or the fences around them or the doors and windows, even coffee tables, tile floors, walls. Our appliances are basically just boxes, even picture frames and our screens. We are just kind of obsessed with these rigid, straight angles, and you get out into nature, and none of it's like that. None of it is all clean and neat. It's one big thing, and it just goes to show the, the types of thinking we can get stuck in, and most of us spend most of our time indoors, which is why I think nature seems so fascinating once we actually step out into it. But little modes of consciousness over time, they definitely affect the reality we're living in. And there's a huge chasm between inside and outside. And I think that's kind of a great way to think about the simulation you're talking about versus the matrix and the fruits that are yielded by constantly being in one type of thinking versus another. Absolutely. 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 So and if you're listening to this, it's not meant to be like, oh, these are the problems with the matrix. This is meant to be able to understand how it works. And the reason why I shared that story in the beginning is like, listen, when you begin to like consciously understand what you're practicing, 
which is like, I'm still in the matrix world. I'm still living in a square house. I ain't going to move out into a TV tomorrow. <laughs> but that being said, it's like, okay, well, if I can't do that, this is why I was told that that computer story in the beginning, like if you can't do that, if you're not ready for that yet, well, then what you can do is begin to begin to align to something which is true. You're already aligned to something which is false. Now you have to go and when you begin to align to things which are true and we're defining true is based upon the natural laws in which we find ourselves in, well, then we become ingrained with that. And then the outer world begins to change to us. And it sounds nuts, but that's how it works. I've talked about this in the past, but we need to understand. There is a false apocalypse age of Aquarius, which is being fed to everyone right now. To use Ross Ben terminology, this is timeline manipulation. There is a timeline, like quite literally, and this goes, we, I've talked about astrology a lot on the show, but there is a, you know, they, they using, and we'll talk about this later, Greg. A false astrology timeline, and then just like they're just telling the story over and over again, and people are getting swept up into it. Like it's that real, and that's what's happening right now. So now let me go. I want to go. Uh, how much time do we have left? Are we still? Do we talk straight through, and then you edit out, or do we want to go in and the first hour, like we do a break? We do typically talk straight through. I know everyone has a different process, but we also aren't really super limited on time. It's not a, a rigid thing. Awesome. I never want to take up a guest's time or full day, but like we still have a couple things on the agenda for what we were going to consider the first hour, and, and that's fine. Good, good, good. I want to make certain that I get some stuff into the folks who just listened the first hour and encourage them to, to listen the second hour because we're going to get into more specifics. So we want to go back and look at Mesopotamia. So Mesopotamia, so this is like Sumer and then Babylon. And so the story which we're told, this is the story which they teach us in our schooling, is that we got a bunch of people and they were just like nomadic and they're like walking around and like, God, this nomadic, this sucks. Let's go and like settle camp. Let's just commit to being here. And that was between the Tigers and the Euphrates River. And, you know, that was the Fertile Crescent. And then civilization was born. This is what it is. And they went immediately from being these hunter-gatherers to like immediately having a highly regimented social class system to having complex tax code, a fully established line of industry of slavery and human trafficking, to banking, to a completely laid out zodiac and geometry. Like all this stuff, like all came from here. Like that's the first thing like all of the wandering human beings went to go and do. You know, if you're looking at that and you're looking at that, like, you know, you know, assuming that this is an accurate or somewhat accurate description, you know, it doesn't make sense. Like, that's not how it would happen. You don't go from like nothing to everything. And it just doesn't work that way. Like, you know, there's more to that story, which is not being told and what we can see and whatever that may be. But what we can see since then is like those systems never went away. Those fundamental pieces are still here. We are in those systems. We have a very different expression. And the way it's kind of positioned to us is like that's so different, but it's the same. We're still using the same geometry. We're still using the same astrology. We still got the same banking. It never went away. I want to go into calendars, but I want to point this out first is that 
the human being becomes the environment they're born into. You take any one day old baby, you put it in any household and whatever language they speak in that household, that baby at age two will be speaking it. Their mind melds to it. If they speak 10 languages, their mind will meld to the 10 languages. Same thing has happened like with habits. Whatever the habits were of the people who you lived with in the first seven years of life, chances are you're doing them right now and have no idea. Why is that? Because you became those, you internalized it. You know, if anyone who's ever caught themselves saying or acting or behaving just like their parents, you know, that's why it happens. But it doesn't end there. We become the system which we are born into. And these systems have always been in place. We are all part of the civilization matrix. Like these are the small strings that hold us in place. So that being said, I want to share with you like one more personal story. And I think this will be a nice way to stop in our first half. So calendars. I've always been very, very aware, and I've talked about calendars a lot, about how, like, you know, calendars are just, like, one big mindfuck. It's just, like, uh, <laughs> they're just not real. They work within the system, and this is the truth of everything in the matrix. The matrix holds value in the matrix, but if it's outside of the matrix and it's not true, or if it holds no value, you know it's completely, it's a matrix artifact. And so like our calendars work in the system, but our calendars are all messed up. Our calendars are all messed up in so many different ways, in so many different ways. And I'll give you an example. The equinox, we know historically that the equinoxes has been an important time on earth. And we know that like, you know, ancient, almost every culture, they have like a holiday around the equinox, spring and fall. And it's a fair assumption that there's something that physiologically happens when the equinox happens. If you go and you look at every transition that happens on a more regular basis, when we go through twilight, you know, when it goes from like light to dark, you know, all the animals come alive, different animals come alive, whether it's from dark to light or light to dark. It's just for a small period of time, like all these different sort of things. We know that there's a change that happens when physiological, when you cross the equator, even if it's just as simple as like, you know, the toilet bowl going the opposite direction. But there are things that happen when the midline is crossed. And so when we receive light from the sun, whatever the sun is, and we, you know, we're very, very sensitive to all of this light, that's a midline. We go from like light increasing, increasing, increasing to like decreasing, decreasing, decreasing. And so it's fair to assume that the equinox is something of significance. One of the ways this is kept hidden from people is like the fact that like, you know, no one knows that like ancients used to worship it that way. Or if they did, they think of it as like something like arcane or they think of it as like even people who practice it, they're practicing it in a way which was told. But even if you find your own way to interact, and that's the truth of what all ceremony is, ceremony has to be alive. And to be alive, it has to be real to you. That doesn't mean you can't practice another ceremony, but it has to be alive. But nonetheless, if you actually go and you look, if you go to like the websites where they keep track of like sunrise times and sunset times. And you go and you look, you see, when is it actually equal time daylight and equal time nighttime? The equinox is defined in a couple ways. It's like said to be the midpoint between 
the earth and and the far god what is it no it has to do with the wobble it has to do with the wobble it tells us about like the the seasons and it's like you know these are like the main points that's just an abstract you know these are ideas it's an abstract maybe it's accurate maybe it's not but it's an idea you can't see for certain or people think about it as counting days and again that's another abstract it's just an abstract it's not a real thing like it's really real in the fact that you're counting but it's not a real thing you're counting it's not like an apple but the one thing which is true is that the light, the light changes. That's the truest definition, the objective definition of what the abstract is, that there is one point or actually two points in a solar cycle where it is equal amounts daylight and equal amounts darkness. And so it would be kind of interesting, significant, I would imagine, by being alive on this environment, you know, in, on Earth. And if we know that, like, you know, what do you do and what changes and what happens? And if you go to those websites that tell you when those days are, you'll see that particularly this year, for example, me in Philadelphia changes a little bit depending upon where you are. The equinox, which we just had and most people think happens on March 20th or March 21st, it was on the 15th. The 15th mm -hmm. is when that actual physiological thing happened. These are the things that they go and it keeps us off balance, even if we're trying to go and become connected. So all that said, that's just a setup for this. One of the things which I did, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go and if I'm going to spend more time doing things on the computer, if I'm going to spend more time doing things on the Internet, I'm going to do more of these things. What am I going to go and do and deepen my connection outside of the matrix? And calendars have always been a big thing for me, as I said. And I've always been aware that, like, you know, they're all jacked up, you know, that October is eight and it's the 10th month. And, like, all the other stuff is all jacked up. So I'm like, all right, well, let me get back to basics. And so there's, like, you know, there's 12-month calendars and there's 13-month calendars. But those are matrices, too. The 13th month is a better matrix than the 12-month one. Like, it's more accurate in a way. It's got certain benefits to it. But it also is not the truth. It is not the objective truth. We manage our lives and our days, what we, our activities during our days through the months. And the month obviously has a correspondence to the word moon. Like it is based upon something real. And the month is now an abstract idea of a true cycle called the moon. And we've got these months and, you know, 13th or 12th. But if you really want to be connected to it, you have to go on the month cycle. And the month cycle is always changing. Like it begins when it's dark. You know, it doesn't begin when it's full because nothing forms that way. I guess you could do it that way, but I, I choose. I've redone my calendar. Like, I'm still in the matrix. I still need to go and schedule times. But I redid my calendar based upon what the actual moon cycle is. I would plan my week every day on Sunday. Every day on Sunday, that's when I plan my week. But if you go and you look at the moon cycle, what it literally is, if it begins on the new moon and then you got a quarter moon and then you got a full moon and then you got a last quarter moon. Those are basically where the weeks come from. The weeks are a symbol of, they are an abstract of the truth of the cycle of the moon. So I'm like, all right, you know, sometimes it's going to be different, you know, because it changes all the time. But, you know, sometimes my week, what I'm calling a week, and a week is just an idea, but it's really my planning. It's like, when will I do the planning? It will be in these segments of what is true in the heavens. And mm -hmm. so 
But it's all I like. I lined it up with the calendar, so I still know what the real date is. But the point I'm trying to make, I'm not telling everyone to go do this. What I'm trying to go and inspire to people is like begin to look at what's real. Begin to realize that all of these tiny things which are being attached, which are going to go and hold us onto the matrix, like they're just going to bring you along. All we got to do is begin to start like taking ways, these small little things which we do. I still need a calendar. I still use calendars. I like to play it out. You know, that's helpful for me. But now mine is grounded primarily in the natural world. If you're going to ask a good question, the good question is like, isn't the moon a control system of Saturn. We can answer that in a moment. But <laughs> I'm using that as an example of these are the ways which we break out of the matrix as much as anything else. If we're still thinking that all of the matrix stuff is true, well, then we're still connected on this very, very deep foundational way. Yes. And I think the moon calendars kind of thing is a great example because you can hold in your head what day of the week it is, which we all do, but then you also need to hold in your head, well, where is the moon in its cycle? Because everybody will say that, you know, new moons and full moons, these are real opportunities to start something new or wrap something up. So if you're planning your week on Sunday, that's fine, but you look at where the moon is in its phase and be like, oh, well, Thursday of this week is a new moon. Maybe these new things I'm going to cast out into the world, these new goals of mine, these changes I want to make, I should plan them for Thursday in accordance with the new moon because the energies will be right and I'll be going with the flow of energy as opposed to against it. And it doesn't really matter what day of the week it is except for our navigation of the matrix. It's obviously important for scheduling and this and that, but we can hold both ideas in our head and we can have one foot in one world and one foot in the other. And without putting that other foot in the simulation, as you say, or the natural world, we miss out on so much. And we, we might catch the random waves of energy and they might be in accordance with our will or our goals, but you can plan that out too. And it's not that much more complex to do so. So I think that's a real great example of how you can do both. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. It's and it, it listen, it's a hassle, but this is why the hassle is important. Because if you are not making conscious efforts to disconnect, or maybe this is said more so, like if you want to disconnect, this is one of the ways which you do it. And what you're doing is you are taking your mind, you are taking your consciousness, and you are putting its focus on something which is objectively real. There's no such thing as friggin' Thursday. Thursday is a made-up idea in the Matrix. Now, in the Matrix, it makes total sense. I'm not saying like right off Thursday. I'm just saying there's no, like, it's not a real thing. There's a real thing where there's a full moon. There's a real thing where there's a new moon. And when you begin to realize the matrix is, this is what I mean by creating an abstract and twisting it from what the true reality is. Mm -hmm. And so when you begin to recognize that, you don't even have to like, 
This all happens on such a deep unconscious level is why it lasts for thousands of friggin' years. And the fact that it doesn't seem like it's a big deal is the reason why it sticks. But the flip side of that story is it's really this simple. It's really this simple of understanding this is how one of the ways it keeps you trapped into time. Time is one of the biggest things. So time is a made up an idea. But there is true time. The sun really does rise. We can all agree upon that. But time itself is like, you know, 314 is totally made up. It is true within the matrix. But if it was real, well, then how come we can have daylight savings time? How can we can just change it forward and backwards? How can you can have one foot in one time zone and one foot in another time zone? It's fake. Just pointing this out to yourself and reminding yourself like everything in the matrix, it works like on the deeper level is because you just assume it like, yeah, oh, yeah, this is just the way things are. Like there is kind of a relativity in the fact that there are folks in one part of the world who are seeing the sunrise and some folks are not. But again, that's kind of abstract because you cannot actually experience that until you can begin to go and see that in the consciousness of your own mind, I suppose, without using their technology. But it is breaking down the threads that hold our minds to seeing life on this mundane level is how you begin to free it. And it's not just to free it. It's then to tap it back into something which is objectively real. And so mm. these are all different techniques. And this is like literally what you have to do, like whether it's this or something else. These are the techniques. Like, you know, we mentioned this about like sharing secrets. Like this is what we're all doing right now. I just shared with you Mike's secret. I got a clue. And we're going to talk about this in the second half. Like I got a clue from a friend of mine about astrology a couple weeks ago. I completely flipped my understanding to see what's actually going on. And so it's hmm. like we are all in this period of like in very practical, mundane ways of working with this stuff, which we work with as we let go, as we begin to see what it is to move away from the abstract and realign to the truth. This is when the rest of the stuff, like the strange letters being sent to you and then finding out your family history and like, you know, which then all that does, you know what that did? that did something real for my father. All of that was a story which did something real for my father. And that, my friends, is real. Mm, all good stuff. And just to kind of put a capstone on the first hour, I wanted to backtrack a little bit to one of these bullet points on the outline because it seems like the second hour is going to be all about the tools to help us think in new ways and escape the framework that you laid out in the first hour. And it's complex. It takes an hour just to lay that foundation. But I wanted to ask you a little bit more, maybe an overview of how we can apply some of this to what is going on right now in the world these days. It's hard to talk and think about events and concerns people have living in the big matrix without drifting into what you call matrix thinking. And you do say, by using matrix thinking to navigate the matrix, you will always remain within it. And clearly that makes sense, but how can we get better at avoiding that pitfall, specifically in these times? Well, you begin to recognize all of the techniques of the matrix and their effects within you. And so that should be a good clue as to the degree in which you are maybe connected and you're impacted. 
what's going on right now is it is a huge smoke and mirrors song and dance. Like it's real. Like they're really people like who are putting into real action a a false storyline. Mm-hmm. Vaccine passports and the Great Reset and all this kind of stuff. None of it is technically real, but it might affect some people's lives. And we are in the middle of the last, really since 1945 has been, like we're in a major transition point right now. Will it, will it last two years, two months, 10 years, who knows? But we're in this period where everything is changing, you know, particularly like the new currencies, like new governments, like new ways in which people live their life, the new normal. All of that has been the setup for this moment. Like this is the moment where the greatest number of people are the most prepared for us to try to pull this off. Like that's what's happening right now. And, you know, there's a storyline that says all of this is done for our growth. Like I think that's a great if you're going to look at it like that's a great way to look at it. But like it's not real. And this is what's happening. But it really is being implemented. (laughs) It's just the foundations aren't true. So the same thing is what I just talked about with changing the way which I still use a Gregorian calendar, but I use it based upon Mike's rules. And Mike's rules are like I'm aligning it to the actual moons. And so my month begins when you're 14. As you begin and as we begin to recognize all of the different things which are fake about now and participate in the way you best can. I'll tell you what, what you don't want to do is fight it because that's what it wants. It's like beginning to see what it is, and then you put your attention elsewhere in something. So you can't plan right now. There's no planning. Everything in the matrix has prepared you to prepare for your future and all this sort of stuff. I mean, some people don't do that, but like all of those plans are gone. And even if you wanted to make plans, you can't make plans. Like, oh, well, what about I want to go and take a trip in six months? Well, you might not be able to travel in six months. or You know, all that sort of stuff. Everything is in the moment right now. And the only thing you can really do is realize what you're participating with and also be reassured that it's not real. You can't participate in it. The more you participate, the more it will become real. So I think that's an important thing. And then knowing how to go and connect and understand what is real. What is real? You know, isn't that funny? Why would you call it is real unless you want it to become real? Real, right? That's all part of the word magic. You know, when you take a false concept and you want people's minds to believe it's true. So what is real in the natural world are things which you can see and touch and experience, but then you can understand it from a greater perspective. So I talk about this in the video a lot, and this was like the beginning of all of the Susquehanna mystery. What we think, this is why it's called the simulation. It's not that it's fake. It's that it's not what you think it is. I don't know what it is, but it works in different ways. And so you can move through life. You will move through life, even through matrix life. If you are connected to something deeper and real, they do that all the time with their magic. That's why they use words like currency. That's why they use words like Israel. They use words like this because they're trying to create. They're tapping into something deeper. Well, all you got to do is tap into something deeper. And this is it. I say this time and time again in the video. The matrix is complex. The greater reality is easy. It's simple. 
The rules and the laws of the greater reality are simple, and those are the ones you want to integrate with. What do you think a current is? Hmm. What is this force that moves water? Think about that. Like when you go and you think about that, and, and, and this is like a big concept, which you need to allow your mind to unfold into, is if you stand in water in, in a moving stream, and then you pick up some of that water in a bowl, it's the same substance, except it's not moving. Matrix thinking will tell you all day long that, you know, all sorts of logical explanations of what this mysterious force is that moves water. Matrix thinking is ultimately a prison of the mind. They hide the truth in plain sight. How do you hide truth in plain sight? With this naming consciousness. Oh, this is just that. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. Oh, you can't even see or sense what that is. We are living in a greater mystery. And the matrix lives within the greater mystery. The more we begin to align our consciousness with the movements of the greater mystery, even if you still remain in the matrix, you know, right now we're trying to do one foot in each world, I suppose. This is where you receive your grounding. Mm -hmm. Because the whole thing with the matrix and the separation, the naming consciousness is like you're not grounded to anything. So here, why don't you get grounded to this? Why do you think people are so terrified of what they think this illness may be? It's because they're not grounded in anything. When you're not grounded in anything, you're going to go and cling to whatever makes sense. Wow. Well said. And I really love the water example. It's that naming. Well, we name it water. So you take it out of the river and it's still just water and there's no difference. But there is this quality to the current, to the movement, to mysterious force that pushes it along that is no longer there. And because it's just not in our language, it seems frivolous. And it clearly isn't when you reflect on it a little bit. To tie this into another show, I interviewed Clint Richardson recently, and we talked a lot about these kind of things in the context of value. If you take fruit from a tree in a grocery store, that's worth like a quarter. So in our matrix thinking, it's almost valueless. There's a bunch of them. We can always get them. But when you really reflect on a banana or a pineapple or an apple, it's like you can't quantify the taste of it, the crunch of it, the way it's created from this tree. I mean, you can stare in awe at the tree and you're like, wow, there's just so much abundance being created from this plant. It's actually pretty cool. And none of that stuff translates to our matrix value. And it just gets everything warped. And I think that's just another example of the subtleties that are actually not so subtle when you dig into them. You're 100% right. When we're talking about the matrix, we're like two fish trying to describe water to each other. <laughs> but when you begin to realize what you're saying, when you begin to realize the modus operandi of how the matrix thinking works and the matrix itself works, then it becomes easier and easier to recognize. And when you recognize it more and more, then it just unfolds in terms of what to do with it. There's nothing so much to do at first as much as like recognize all of those different things. I mean, I've brought this up many times. It's like actually go and think about how many stop signs you saw today. 
if you live in a more dense area, you probably saw more. And you probably saw at least two times, if not three times more than what you can count because there are all these others that are in your peripheral. And then you go and you extrapolate that out to like how many stop signs you see in a year and how many you see in like a lifetime. And it's, I don't know, it's like, you know, you're probably approaching a couple hundred thousand impressions all with the exact same symbol, same color, same font, and that's going in your consciousness. You're like, oh, well, what's the big freaking deal, right, dude? You know, just calm the F down. There are billboards out there that say, like, have a Coke and smile. Why don't you smile? Well, go back 100 years ago. How many stop signs did they see in their life? None. Yeah. There weren't any cars. I'm surprised they didn't make the stop sign a hexagon, actually, now that I think about it. But maybe seeing big red stop signs over and over does subconsciously limit us and condition us in deeper ways than we know. How could it not? If we know that you learn your language, not from flashcards, but just being in the presence of people speaking, you learn the grammar, you learn all these sort of different things, maybe not perfectly. This is how we are. This stuff has effects on us. To think it doesn't have an effect on you, everything, everything has an effect, just like what you're saying about the square rooms. And so the point is, I think right now, is like we become aware of all of that. And in the areas that make sense to you, you'll be like, okay, I'm going to go do this. I'm consciously choosing to align my consciousness this way to something which is real, something which is objective, something which doesn't have a story, something that... I can go and it's tangibly in my hand. Mm -hmm. I'm with you, man. And also, I just want to add ceremony to the stack. You mentioned earlier that it has to be alive, but you also said this was a good tool in the outline. We talk a lot about elite ceremony around here, but what would you want to say about its general purpose and what it can look like for us and maybe us creating our own ceremonies in our own lives? All right. Great question. Great question. So ceremonies, the first question is like, well, how do you define ceremony? What do you mean by that? So a ceremony is a conscious effort to integrate, merge, blend with something, usually something which is going to be non-material, I mean, like the earth is material, but maybe let's say you'd want to like if it was a stream, like whatever it is that you're like, OK, I want to connect with it and I want to go through something where this will deepen my connection and connections in quotation marks like it's it's like, you know, whatever that may mean. So that's what ceremony means. And we usually think about that as a ritual. A ritual is a type of ceremony. Ceremony is always like a ritual. When you think about these esoteric ones, they're usually to connect with something, to integrate. But in a very general sense, ceremony is a very human process. And this is what we need. We've lost our ceremonies. We've been given other people's rituals, and they're usually dead. When you perform a ritual, and it's dead. It has no meaning. You're not filling it with your own life. And what your life is, is a general desire to do it, to participate, to merge with that, which it is. It's just dogma. That's what dogma means. It's like a, it's a dead ritual. It's a dead ceremony. So ceremony, I think, is one of the most important things. And human beings are immensely creative. And I think that we need to go and create our own ceremonies. I think the word ceremony has like a bit of a 
connotation to it, like a formality to it, and maybe even an intimidating factor to someone. Like, well, oh, I, I can't do a ceremony. I'm not a, I'm not a priest. And like, no, it's part of the human experience. Like knowing what it is that you value, that you want to connect with. You know, we do a ceremony all the time. You know, you put your hand in your heart and you connect with the flag with your you know, the old Pledge of Allegiance, you know, all that sort of stuff is ceremony. So we need to go when we move our consciousness out of the matrix world, because we are constantly, constantly merging with the matrix. And the more we are connected to that, the less we can go and move into ourselves outside of the matrix. So we use ceremony in whatever setting, as long as it's true and real, and you know what you're doing and you're creative with it. And this is how you connect applying union consciousness, that union consciousness is ceremony, they're one and the same, to something outside of the matrix. It is immensely, and I wouldn't say significant, I would say it's a necessity in terms of being able to move outside of a particular way of thinking and being. Hmm. Wow, really, really interesting. I have heard people who practice magic talk about the value of creating your own feast days. You know, don't just go by the calendar. We have all these days, Columbus Day, President's Day, Martin Luther King Day. There is no reason why you can't take your own heroes and idols and mark on your own calendar, you know, calendars, but the day they were born or the day they died or create a day where you decide what is valuable and on a yearly basis, you pay tribute to those qualities or those people that you appreciated. I mean, there's just a lot more power we have that just goes unrecognized, even in something simple like that. We're just led around by, well, what goes on in March? You know, what goes on in August? And we don't ever decide what we put value in. Kind of interesting. You're absolutely right. I mean, I personally think that what you want to merge with is like a force, a force of the greater reality, you know, beyond like a story or a person, because there is something very, very deep and tangible to it. It doesn't have to be, in my opinion, it's not like a, what we think of as a religious sort of thing. It is a conscious way in which you are going to go and blend. We talked about the current earlier, like in no mincing of words, From my experience, my conclusion, my opinion is that the current, like the literal current, which you just don't think is a big deal, it's just the way water moves, that's one of the most important things on this entire planet. It is what is the living symbol. Like you can't hold a current, can't touch a current, it's not a thing, but it moves water, it moves life. To me, a ceremony where you blend with that, that makes the most amount of sense to me because you are blending with the unfolding of life. You don't know what holds before you, but you are saying like, let me go and blend with that. I think things like that are immensely, are the most powerful things that one can do. They're ceremony too. So for people who are maybe struggling with how to do that practically, are you talking about meditation? Well, I guess that depends. You know, I mean, I create my own ceremonies all the time. So this is what I mean by alive. What's important to you? 
what are the things that you place value on and you work with those? I mean, ceremony can be meditation, but, you know, I'm a little bit more material and physical. Symbolism. I'll tell you what, you, there's something which I offer. It's called the Susquehanna Mystery Ceremony. And it's a way which people connect with the Susquehanna River. It's the oldest kernel on the planet. It's the oldest kernel on the planet. If you can understand what that implies, well, then, you know, good. So the question is, a lot of people are like, okay, I want to go and have an experience. And, you know, obviously you can do whatever you want on yourself or like on the river to yourself. But what I did was I made a quilt. I made a felted quilt. I'm really talented with my hands. So I make all sorts of crafts. So I made a felted quilt of the Susquehanna. And it's a replica. It's in harmony. You know, I knew what I was doing. It looks like it. It's a sympathetic representation of the Susquehanna River and even more so with the current, what is actually moving the water. And so I created a ceremony, which I do for people. And what that ceremony includes is it's the placing of stones in certain places, like the map, like there's a certain place in the Susquehanna River. That's where Herkimer Diamonds are. And there's another place where all of the anthracite on the planet comes from. And I've got examples of those. And we place that on the corresponding places on the map. And then I've got other things that I value, other stones which I've collected along my ways. And we more or less, we reconnect. We build a layer on top of that quilt, all these quartz crystal points on top of the actual river portion and, you know, the land portion as the stones. And we do some other things. And then, you know, we really make it a rich experience. There's a ceremony. Probably, in my opinion, the most beautiful thing a human being can do is probably sing to something. There's something magical about the human voice when it sings. It's in every culture seems to recognize that when we sing, something very special happens. You know, I think that probably is added. There's a song. <laughs> There's a song in the Susquehanna mystery ceremony. That is for certain. <laughs> right on. Well, that is a great example of creating your own ceremony. And hopefully people reflect on their own lives and their own values and find a way to take that template and apply it to something they care about. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> Right on. Well, this has all been really, really insightful. Coming in on three hours at this point. Geez, and it flew by so fast. Before we go, we also got to talk about ways people can add some value to your life for all the great stuff you share with us. I noticed your website has gotten a refresh. You're offering a new type of biomancy session. You still have the subscribe star, but talk to us about the ways people can show their appreciation to you. All right, Greg, thank you for this opportunity. And thank you for everyone who's lasted for three hours. Like this is, <laughs> this was intense, man. We went all over the place. All right. So definitely I would, I would appreciate all the support, which I can get, you know, whether that's financial or not, you know, we're all kind of supporting each other. The more which I am supported, the more I can put out better quality stuff and reach more people. And also, as I said, I still want to go and do stuff in person. So my anticipation, particularly as it gets warm this summer, is to do more things on the road. So that being said, like the first place, you know, just go to YouTube. That's there's a lot of really, really good material out there. Going forward, I'm putting about half a video on YouTube and half on Subscribestar. The Subscribestar is real important. 
if I can get that to where I need it to be, that will definitely allow me to go and do more higher quality videos. Plus you get like, you know, insider stuff. I do my monthly ceremonies on the subscribe star also. So that's a great place. You mentioned the website, you mentioned the website and you mentioned the biomancy services. Probably in between from us recording and this being released, I'm changing all of that. I've been in the process of change. Once a year, I change all the services. It's like, yeah, one year to do them, and then I come up with all new ones. And so I'm about to come up with a whole bunch of really good services. Go there. I'm calling it Skymancy now, and it's dealing more with the objective reality. That sheet, Greg, which I made for you, I'll make those for other people, and I'll explain how to use it, how it's beneficial, what they can, how they can use this to really move throughout the matrix. I've got a whole bunch of services, like any sort of one-on-one -on -one work, you go to Susquehanna Alchemy, and you can find that there. And then what I'm really excited about, and are you in front of a computer right now? I am. Of, all right, go type up susquehannaalchemy.threadless.com or if you're on my website where the t-shirts are i just opened up a t-shirt shop and stickers and i'll be the first one to say it like i'm not exactly the most unbiased critic but my stuff's pretty fantastic <laughs> yes i'm looking at it right now i've seen you make a lot of images with this aesthetic and it's cool to see it on some shirts well, they're like eight different designs. I got the art on there. I got the prints. I got the stickers. There's a whole bunch of really interesting things you're not going to find anywhere. Yes. I really like the uh, John Juan time traveler one, the Johnny Juan time traveler. I like that logo. I noticed that in your signature and I was like, wow, that's so perfect for him. Uh, I don't know where he got or did that artwork, but it's it's really good. James Turek, he's a listener, and I did a session with him. He did that. He made that for me. And so it's like I try to have fun and like the, the stickers. So that's a great fun way which people can support me to go there, get a shirt, get a sticker. That would be fantastic. Send me an email. I, I rarely respond to comments like anything which is posted online unless you're a subscribe star. But if you go to the website and you send me an email, like I always respond to all those. I love to hear from people. This is a lot of fun. That's what I think I get the most out of doing this is because I really do like interacting with people. And so I welcome that opportunity. Awesome. Well, man, it is always a pleasure. I'm just such a big fan of how you see the world and tie things together. So an overview of all that stuff and a show about helping more people adopt the tools and techniques and mindset that you have. Uh, I think that's uh, really much appreciated, and uh, I'm glad we've become such friends over this whole journey. You are one of the greats, and thanks again. Take care out there. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Greg, and all the listeners. Thank you, too. And boom goes the dynamite, a near three-hour episode with the great Michael Wan, trying to get deeper into the head of the man who has taught us so much talking about how he sees the structure of reality, the cause and effect of symbols and consciousness and synchronicity, the philosophy that drives him. It was fun. I'm really glad we could try to go about it this way. I think we started pretty fundamental. We took a long time to lay the base, and I can't expect Mike to know what this audience has heard and what level everyone is at. Plus, it's also good to be reminded of ideas that are easy to forget and so often drift into the background or we tend to overlook them 
while we go through our day-to-day life. But because we took quite a bit of time to establish that base, I just kept pushing where we would end the free show because I wanted to give you guys a little bit more. And, well, (laughs) we ended up with a pretty long one, and the second hour is definitely awesome. There were so many interesting things said. I don't think I've ever really thought about Apocalypse phonetically being a match for Epoch Eclipse. One era ending, one beginning, definitionally sure. But it's interesting to see it work phonetically, too, pretty much. I like that idea that a changing of the guard is the best opportunity to break out. When the elite play a big hand, yeah, a lot of people comply and are driven further away from the rest of us. And a lot of other people finally start to tumble down the rabbit hole and reverse engineer, hey, wait a minute, if this was a lie, what else could be a lie? And I had this in my notes. I don't think it got brought up in the interview itself. I hate to repeat myself if it did, but it's the credo or the mission statement that Mike has added to his website recently. But he says, the purpose of Susquehanna Alchemy is not to provide solutions, but to teach how to identify and avoid the traps of the sick and clever system and inspire our collective remembering of a harmonious, plentiful, and completely different way to experience life on and with Earth. That's well said. I think it's pretty clear, talking to Mike, that that mission statement permeates through pretty much all the work that Mike's done. It's also great to see him and Ross Ben doing shows together and comparing notes on this stuff. Be on the lookout for that if you're curious. I think you can find it on either one of their YouTube channels. Also, Mike made a really interesting point about current and currency and the movement of currency. I think maybe that was a second hour thing now that I think about it, but maybe part of the success of this show is that I was lucky enough to happen to peg it to marijuana, something real, something potent and natural, something that has risen in popularity almost right along with the show, funny enough a show that breaks down to THC, driven by topics that are inspired by the qualities of the plant's wisdom in a lot of ways. Happy accident. (laughs) And maybe that's why Apple is so successful. And like he said, Amazon. So many brands that attach to natural things. I don't know how we explain Samsung or Sony, but I think there's something there. Maybe mechanical companies and tech companies are successful by pegging themselves to something dead, (laughs) since they are at the apex of the anti-life agenda. Obviously, I'm just spitballing here. My thoughts are not nearly as well-developed as our guests, but I do what I can. And speaking of our guests, I know that every listener cannot support every person I bring on. It would be pretty crazy. But Mike operates in a unique subject matter where a book might not be the right vehicle for him. He has a subscribe star, but that sort of thing, like Patreon, is much better for what I do. A constant stream of reoccurring stuff. Mike can't put these epic breakdowns and connections together at the same pace. But he does offer personal readings, which is honestly the best win-win for someone who respects his work and perspective and wants to support him and wants to get some insight that applies to them specifically. So really, if you think of Mike as one of your top-tier types of guests, help contribute to him staying in the game, because you know, as well as I, 
how niche his stuff can be. I've always tried to make sure we put supporting the guests as part of the recipe. It's actually really frustrating when I see other shows that don't even put the guest's name in the title of the episode. They don't even put the links in the show notes. But whatever, this isn't a song about them. It's a song about me. (laughs) And the internet crackdown has really just brought to the forefront of my mind how important that is, that For so many different subject areas, we only have a handful of high-level operators. A handful can be pretty close to none. So what would we do for these sorts of subjects without Mike and Ross Ben and Chris Knowles? My job would be a lot harder if I wanted to have a synchromistic piece of the pie, that's for sure. But it's true for many different subject areas. It's usually less than 10 great people. Maybe it's true for podcasts, too. You be the judge. But stakes are higher than they were in 2010. It was all fun and games for me back then. But I have doubled down in this field. It's been amazing. It was totally my choice. But it's also feeling more risky and vulnerable now. And I kind of put myself out there, hoping I could do the best job I could do, find an audience, and then trust this new network of anonymous people to not let me fall. Trust that I've provided them with enough high-level content and value that in return, they won't let me slip through the cracks or let the censorship hammer destroy my life. And that has worked out really well so far. Things have been pretty easy to date, but we will see how that holds up in the next decade or two. And it isn't just about me, but all our great guests. I put them under the umbrella. We need to stand together. The Plus Show... Almost every single episode does offer listeners a lot more. The free show is really just a proof-of-concept, long-form preview. In today's episode with Mike, we got into techniques to recalibrate consciousness outside of the Matrix, why the Zodiac is in the Federal Reserve Building and three other official government buildings in Washington, D.C., Matrix Astrology versus Natural Astrology, Balaam and BLM, Current and currency, see, there we go, there it is. How living outside of the Matrix might be different than the stereotype of the prepper survivalist. Do we really need food as much as the Matrix has us believe? That's a weird one. Comes up more and more. Mike's radical thoughts on the moon, very fun. The value of ceremony and bringing it more into our own life, all kinds of good stuff. I don't know how to put a price on this sort of material, but $8 a month. Seems fair. And I know you know that I don't know you personally, so it's easy to just say, well, he's not talking to me, but hey, I am talking to you. If more big operations like what has happened in the last year and a half continue to happen, where would you be without the Rolodex of alternative podcasts and news sources that you enjoy? Think about that. If you're not supporting your top five, I don't think you're doing it right. And I hope I'm in that top five. But if I am, help me prepare to weather any storm that might come my way before it's right on my doorstep. Because I'm out here, guys. You didn't ask me to do this, but you have participated. And if you can't be as bold and exposed in your own life because of friends or family or work, that's all good. But you can quietly support my willingness to let it all hang out on your behalf, right? So look in the show notes. The link to sign up for Plus is always going to be right at the top. Bada bing, bada boom. And I'll see you on the other side.
Big thanks again to Mike and to you guys for sticking with me. I'm going to get out of here. I've done my part. Your move, Matrix makers, attention takers, and illusion fakers. Your fucking...